First Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 16. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-toned, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we open your scriptures, Lord, and together we take a look into this passage, um, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you speak to us, help me to communicate a word, help us to apply the truth to our, these truths, Lord, to our hearts. And as we leave this building, Lord, to leave this building with this sense of joy, gladness, and understanding, Lord, having a greater view of, of the gospel, of the local church. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you may help us this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now, we, we have seen and continue to see the downfall of many um, leaders in business and politicians because their bad conduct or reproachable conduct. Recently, George, George Santos, an American politician who is in the U.S., who is the U.S. representative for New York 3rd District, um, made it to the news headlines not because of his good accomplishments, but because of his personal conduct. And by the way, George Santos, he is a son of uh, immigrants. Both parents are Brazilians who immigrated to the U.S. many, many years ago. And he was indicted for dishonesty and deception. He's been accused of transferring money donated to his campaign to his own personal account. According to his indictment, he also unlawfully applied uh, for unemployment benefits for people who had lost their jobs due to the pandemic while running for the office. He also lied to the House of Representatives. He was also indicted in Brazil for buying expensive clothes paying with check without having funds 
to cover the check. Overall, we have seen the downfall of many religious leaders as well. Pastors, priests, priests, bishops, presbyters. In both Reformed and Catholic Church, for similar causes. Leaders seeking to enrich themselves, abuse of power, sexual misconduct. It is an epidemic among leadership. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, there's a long list that we looked into last month that highlights the qualifications for elders, pastors in the church. Today, in the second half of chapter 3, we are going to see a, long, a list for the qualifications for deacons in the church. And we could call this list uh, the pastors or the elders counted of a uh, um, code of conduct, right? Now, from Paul's view, it is extremely crucial that Timothy seeks among the congregation qualified men to serve in these positions. And just for clarification, when the Bible talks about qualifications, the Bible is talking about character, as I mentioned last month. As a matter of fact, the Bible recognizes only two offices in the church, the deacons and the elders. Therefore, it's crucial for the local church to be wise and discerning in choosing those who serve in these positions. Now, even though these two lists are similar and we could put them together and and somehow complement each other, the Bible clearly distinguished between Deacons and elders. The elders are those responsible for leading, teaching, and providing guidance to the church, while the deacons are called servants. So far, we have talked about women um, and elders in the church, and today the spotlight will be on deacons. And just uh, for clarification, the word, the Greek word for deacons, diakonos, means servant. So deacons are servants. And the truth is, the truth is that the conduct of church leaders and their members either strengthens or weakens the congregation's ministry in the community. A bad reputation for its leaders will impact its proclamation of the truth in the community. And the same is true for members in the congregation. Your witnessing to your neighbors will be more powerful As you seek to live out what you believe, your conduct will speak loudly to your neighbors. The same is true for this church in this community. Now, the first point that I want to share with you, deacons in the church. Before we dive into this passage, let's turn our Bibles in Acts chapter 6, specifically verse 3, just for a moment. In Acts 6, 
We see the election of seven men by the church in Jerusalem to help in the daily distribution of food between the people because some of the widows were being neglected. The church had a sort of a mercy ministry in the beginning where they were feeding widows and people in need. And in this daily distribution, some were being neglected. So the church, following the guidance of the elders, elected seven men to help the congregation to evenly distribute food so that all we get a shared part. And look at the apostles' instruction in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. And he's, they're talking here to the church. And, he, and, and, and they say, Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty, this duty of distributing food for the congregation, to those who are in need. Now, even though in Acts 6, the seven men were not called deacons, their service became the template adopted by the church in the first century in regards of diaconal work. The office of deacon aroused out of a necessity to serve the growing church in helping, in meeting physical needs among the congregation. At large, the church came to recognize the seven men as the first elders, uh, the first deacons. And by the time Paul wrote his epistle to his epistles in general, Deacons were part of the body of Christ, were part of these local congregations. As we can clearly see in Paul's greeting to the church in Philippi. Look at what it says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. Clearly, we see a distinction between elders and deacons. He's greeting personally the elders and deacons at the church in Philippi. Our passage today reminds us in an easy-to-forget lesson that God cares more about who we are before Him than what we do for the kingdom, regardless of what we do, regardless if we are deacons, elders, or just members of the congregation. Now, this is just an introduction that we can see in the Acts 6, the Acts 6 um, these first elders, how they were elected and they served the congregation. Now, when we look to our text today, in verse 8, the word likewise is making connection to what Paul said previously in, chapter, in verse 1 to 7. All right. Paul is saying to Timothy that in the same way that the elders are to be above reproach, verse 2, deacons are to be people of personal dignity, verse 8, of character, integrity, that makes them worthy of respect. And following this, there are three prohibitions. A deacon must not be double-tongued. 
addicted to much wine and greedy for dishonest gain. Double tongue means that deacons must control their tongues because they are involved in the business of serving and will have countless interactions with people. They must be vigilant in what they say and hear from the people whom they serve. Deacons must guard their tongues and ears from being pardoned or promoting gossiping, slandering against fellow members and leaders in the church. Not having a double tongue means that deacons must mean what they say and say what they mean. In Jesus' words in the Sermon of the Mount in chapter 3, Jesus says, let your speech simply say yes and no. Not only deacons are to be wise in their speech, but they also are to be self-controlled in their appetites. Qualified deacons will not abuse alcohol or other substance that would hinder or impair their capacity to serve in discernment. That will hinder their witness. Witnessing to the community. Remember, Deacons like elders are servants not only on Sundays or when the church gathers, but throughout the week. Also, deacons must be people who are not carried away by personal and dishonest gain. Because of the nature of the diaconal work, deacons sometimes will be in contact with the church's money either by handling benevolent funds or, or helping the administration of, of the funds in the church. Deacons cannot be anyone, but anyone can be a deacon if they meet the biblical qualifications. Now, from these negative characteristics in verse 9, Paul turns to a positive. Deacons must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. Qualified deacons must be able to handle the scriptures in such a way that they would be able to encourage the weak and help the distressed. They were able to know doctors so that to help those who are suffering in reading a passage for them and bringing God's uh, relief through the scriptures and in prayer. Simply because the, the deacon's work mainly involves meeting physical needs in the congregation, it does not mean that they do not need to know doctrine. In other words, deacons must know the faith, hold the faith, and live the faith. We're not talking about theological, deep theological truths. We're talking about knowing what you believe and be able to share that with those who are suffering in such a way that will bring comfort to their souls. The deacons must be able to do that. Deacons also are to be tested first before they serve. Basically, Paul is telling Timothy to make sure that he's appointing people to serve as deacons who have been, by their conduct, who have been uh, watched over a certain period of time that their conduct is above reproach. They are people of integrity. They are people of character. 
And this is no small thing. Many churches have been hurt because they were not careful in selecting their elders and deacons. Many churches were split because of deacons. Instead of being peacemakers or in shock absorbers, they become leaders of factions and divisions in the church. For this reason and many others, there must be a season of testing for deacons. How long this season of testing uh, will be, each church can decide this process and how long the spirit of, of uh, testing will be. There's much freedom on this. And then when we look to verse 11, and I want to camp out a little bit on this verse, and I'm going to explain there's some controversies here. It's very interesting, verse 11, and there's a much debate and controversies around one specific word in this verse, wives. Uh, and the Greek word for wives is gunaikas, and the stern, the stem word is gine. Can mean, and this word can mean either wife or woman. Only the context can decide uh, the meaning of the word. Very hard. I've been taking some classes of Greek, and it's, this is extremely hard. <laughs> um, so... Therefore, some churches, because of this verse and this ambiguous or hard-to-define word, some churches see fit to elect deaconesses. Other churches do not. Right? So in regards of this, I'm going to present some arguments in favor for appoint deaconesses and arguments against it. I'm just going to be fair to present the two sides of this. Right? I know the bread of life has their own view. I'm just presenting to you the both sides of this. First, the personal pronoun there does not exist in the original. I'm presenting some uh, arguments in favor of appointing deaconesses, right? The first thing that they say, that when you look in verse 11, it says their wives. There, the personal pronoun does not exist in the Greek, in the original Greek. That's the first. The second... The word likewise suggests that Paul continues to speak of deacons. Therefore, this is the term gunaikas referred to woman, not wife. Third, the qualification listed, qualifications listed in verse 11 are remarkably similar to what is required for male deacons in verse 8. All right. Fourth, why Paul would address deacon's wife and say nothing about elder's wife, since elders have great responsibility than deacons. Fifth, it is evident then from an early period of church history that there were many female deacons. Now, one of the main texts used to complement this one in, in defending the argument for appointing deaconesses is Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2. Just look at me on, on this verse. And the word servant, as you see, is, a, um, is the word diaconus. It says this. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant 
of the church at Sancri, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. So Phoebe is called a servant. The same Greek word used in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, and Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. And they say that because Paul mentioned in the context a specific word, sentry, it implies that she was not only a member, but also a deacon in this church. Right? Now, let me present you the arguments for not appointing deacon, female deacon in the church. First, the Jerusalem church selected only men to help in distribution of food. Second, if Paul is referring to women deacons, then why not assign them the title? Third, in the immediate context of chapter 3, the word gunaikos is twice translated as wife, not women, verse 2 and 12. Therefore, the natural way to read the text in verse 11 is wives. Fourth, given the natural diaconal responsibility, it makes sense that Paul would include some qualifications for their wives. Fifth, diaconal work entails a measure of authority. And since women should not have authority over men, chapter 2, verse 12, Paul would be contradicting himself. Sixth, Phoebe was not a deacon but a servant of the church. There's a whole debate on Romans chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, that is still long. We're not going to dive them, just mentioning it to you. Okay? So as, as we have seen, there are strong arguments on both sides. And whatever a, a church falls into, whatever church decides to go with in appointing deaconesses or not, right? I don't think this is an issue of division or argument. This is not an essential doctrine. Having women deacons or not doesn't compromise the integrity of the local church like having women as elders does. We cannot compare these two things. And there's room for grace in this. And historically speaking, we need to be able to see these things and, and, and respect each other. So that's why I'm trying to present the two views I know there's much controversy and debate about this. Alright? So what? <laughs> so what with all this information and all these uh, arguments? Right? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for this local church? What does that mean for us? Again, whatever the case might be, the bottom line is that either the deacon's wife or a deaconess must be a woman of respectable conduct, not a slanderer. And again, the Greek word here means diabolos, usually referring to the devil. But sober-minded, self-controlled, temperate, 
trustworthy, faithful in all things. Whether deaconesses or deacon's wife, they are called to embody the servanthood attitude of Jesus and serve the congregation in humility, discernment, wisdom, being an example to the young ladies, being an example to others. We have seen this in chapter 2. So I like what Matt is Matthurst in his book about deacons said, and I think it's worth to quote. He says this about deacons. Deacons do physical work with spiritual effect. Deacons must be one woman man, just like elders who manage well their households. I'm sorry. Deacons do physical work with spiritual fact. Their task is not a small thing, but it's crucial for the well-being of the church. That's his quote. I just mixed the other one. So, to those who do not know, I was, my wife and I, when we joined a church, when we became believers, we joined a church and we became, um, after a couple of years, we serve as deacons in our church before we came to Christ our hope. And one of our main responsibilities as deacons was to come earlier, to set up the Lord's table, to make sure that everything is running well, right? Everything is organized and, and, and for the worship service, and be at the front door and greet people. And when the service is done, to make sure that we are at the door just to say, uh, to, you know, just to say bye to the people and then make sure that everything is in place and we are supposed to be the last ones to leave the building. So basically our responsibility was, was focus on the Sunday service or the service during the week. And even though my wife and I, we can agree that we learn a lot in being in serving in this position, I think they missed the important aspect about the diaconal work. The diaconal work is not only meant to be done when we gather in the church. I, wouldn't, I would argue that I think they missed the point. Because there's so many people in this congregation that can help in greeting and organizing the worship service, but not many meet the biblical qualifications for being elder, for being deacon, and be able to bring relief to the sick, to the one that is suffering. I think they miss the point that this biblical office is not only to do things that people may feel comfortable, but they do this physical work with a spiritual effect that impact people's life. Now, just think about a growing church with two or three elders. Do you think the elders can be and can visit everyone who is sick and suffering? No, they cannot. But if they have a cavalry of, of deacons qualified that they can deploy in the name of the church to bring comfort, and they can delegate this, can you imagine the impact of this church and the community? Visiting those who are sick, bringing comfort, bringing relief. This is the kind of work that, that, that we see in the biblical terms for the deacons. A wonderful work and much needed in any local congregation. 
If you have been in any pastoral internship training following your pastor very closely, you're going to see that much of his time is devoted in thinking about preaching sermons and instructions and books and guiding. And as much as they try to visit those who are sick, their time is limited because they have families. But now you have a calvary of people that can be your arms and, and legs in visiting other people. That's a wonderful thing. That is delegating, in some sense, to the deacons. Now, going back to verse 12, Paul tells Timothy that like elders, deacons must be one woman man who manage their households. The idea is having, uh, the idea is of having um, children under submission being brought up in discipline in the instruction of the Lord. Not a perfect home, but an orderly one. And then in verse 13, Paul tells Timothy that those who serve well, who have a reward. They will have a reward. Their work will be rewarded. They will not only gain the respect of the church, but also greater confidence in the faith. We could say they will have a, a vertical and a horizontal reward. Their work will be rewarded by the church in seeing this Calvary of servants serving in from God. What else we need? What else we need as we serve God's people? Do we need actually the approval of men when you're serving God's people? I don't think so. But your confidence in the Lord just grows. And the Lord, who is the faithful and righteous justice, just um, Judge, we reward all of us accordingly. It's not what we all aim for. Is this not encouragement for you to pursue and shape your life according to these qualifications? Not to promote yourself to be an, 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 an elder or deacon, but to shape your life around this code of conduct. And then in verse 14 to 15, Paul clearly states the purpose of his letter. To instruct Timothy in matters relate to the life of the church and what must be the conduct of its leaders and members. Because the church is not just another organization with a, um, a financial board, but it is the pillar and the buttress of the truth or the foundation of the truth, those who are members of this congregation, of this church, must pay careful attention to how they conduct themselves. And the word buttress literally means foundation. It denotes a foundation of a building. And then in verse 26... Paul, we see this early hymn that probably was well known for the church in Ephesus that Paul quotes in 
um, verse 16. And this is the second thing that I want to share with you. This wonderful song about the mystery of God. This hymn hymn in, in verse 16, like the good ones, has strong theological truths. Has strong theological truths. And he starts with the mystery of God in verse 16, right? And this mystery of God is now the revealed truth of the gospel. And this revealed truth of the gospel that he explains in Ephesians chapter 3 is this gospel of salvation. And now God justifies sinners by faith, by grace, through faith. And he's bringing Gentiles and, and Jews into one body through the work of the cross. For Paul, this revealed mystery in the person of Christ is something that continues to captivate his mind, his heart for Jesus. This, in fact, is what fuel his love for God that burns hot and hotter in his heart and his desire to serve the Lord. This mystery that Paul talks about is not something new, like I said, for the Ephesians church. And I wanted to quote here, show to you in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, how he explained this mystery. This mystery of the gospel. Look what he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 4 and 6. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is now that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. When we think about God, we talk about theology, and as much as we need to know about doctrine, who can actually explain who God is in human terms that we can all understand and say this is who He is? We affirm things about God, but who truly knows God? Who truly knows the mystery of the gospel? And He can explain all of it and its beauty and how God transformed sinners into holy people. How does that happen? can explain this deep spiritual truths of the gospel and yet we do have the gospel being explained in the pages of the scriptures but if God is God and we are fallen human beings we're far away from knowing who he truly is so this mystery that is in one sense revealed in the gospel continues to be a mystery And if this is not a mystery for you that warms your heart for Him, oh, my friend, I pray and I urge you 
to ask God to put in you a desire to grow and know who He is. Because if you think the gospel is just a formula, you are far away from knowing the gospel or who Jesus truly is. Mystery continues to be a mystery in one sense. So that we can continue to pursue Him and know Him. Not only in this life, but in all eternity. In all eternity. Have you ever thought about that? As we, as fallen human beings, are experiencing the goodness and tasting the gospel of salvation today, this will continue as we seek Jesus for who He is in eternity. That will be our reward forever. To taste and see and experience God. This mysterious God and yet we when alive, living in each one of us. Do you have, do you see this mystery, this, 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 this desire to know God burns in your heart? Does it? Or all you can explain about your faith is about doctrine. My friends, the, the, I, I really appreciate it and we are all in school and learning about doctrine. But our minds is just a means to reach the heart. It's not the end game. Knowledge is not the end game. Your heart, your affections, your love for Him. That's what the apostles aimed. The early church fathers aimed for that. They were, they were thinkers. Yes. Some of them really hard to understand, like Paul in some aspects. But their goal was to transform people's heart. To bring them to the knowledge of this mystery of the gospel. And friends, I just want to explain briefly. And if you have your Bibles open, just look at this hymn for a moment. Just look at this hymn for a moment. In in verse 16. In this early hymn, we see a couple of things being highlighted here. The first line talks about the incarnation of Jesus. The second talks about Jesus' resurrection. The third talks about Jesus being worshipped by heavens, by angels. The fourth, to the ministers of the apostles and the church and preaching the gospel to all peoples, to all the nations. The fifth line seems to accompany line four as a response to the gospel being preached, faith believed. And the last line emphasized the triumphant ascension of Jesus in glory. This is a hymn. This is a song. We could have a whole sermon here, but this is a song. And as we think about the context, where Paul talked about the proper demeanor of the godly women, the centrality of prayer in the church, Chapter 2, the qualifications for elders and deacons and this mystery of the gospel that has been entrusted to the church that is the pillar and the, and the foundation of truth. It should not surprise us to see that Paul ends this session with a hymn in praise and adoration. Isn't that wonderful? We see... This thinker, this guy who planted so many churches in his writings, 
He quotes a hymn because he barely can contain himself when he thinks about the mystery of God and the church and how good God used sinners to proclaim his truth to the world. And he ends in adoration in his writing so that we can see what it means to be embraced by this gospel. This mystery of knowing God. But I would like to ask you this. Whether you are a member of this church or not, what are your views of the local church? What are your views of the local church? Do you see this local church, this gathering, just a... A gathering of good people who live a relatively healthy life and are devoted to drinking and drugs and crazy lifestyle. And then you see, you come here and say, I, I like to hang out with these people. They're good people and I can be with them. But, but do you see the local church in these biblical terms? Not only in your understanding not only knowledge, do you see the local church as this pillar of truth that God has called you to be part of? What are your views of the local church? Because the truth is, what you believe will inevitably flesh out in your life, your attitudes and your conduct. What you believe about the local church will inevitably flesh out in your attitude towards the local church. But in following this, as we think about this hymn, I want to ask you this. What are your views about singing in the church? What are your views about singing in the church? Friends, if we see an apostle of Christ, and when we think about Jesus before going to the cross as he shared the Lord's Supper with his disciples in a meal, what did they do? They sang a song and they departed. So singing in the church, it's not a small thing. When we shape our worship service and our singing in the church as we seek to exalt Christ, singing in the church is no small thing. And if you think it is, I would ask you to reconsider. Singing is a wonderful thing that God has given to us in a way that we can worship Him. Friends, when you come to church, strive to come early. Strive to be here when we start the worship service. And when we sing, sing. I know that some days are hard. Hard weeks. Things going on in the family, health. But as you come, in such a way, just ask the Lord to transcend you from your personal life. And to dive deep into this spiritual realm by singing. Strive to do that. Come early. And when we sing, 
shout loud, sing with all your heart. Very interesting as to those who are here as we open up this worship service, uh, one of our sisters opened this worship service by quoting uh, Psalm 47. Psalm 47. Let me turn to Psalm 47. I'm going to read for you. That was the first uh, passage read in this building today. Psalm 47. Psalm 47, verse 1. Clap your hands, O people. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. I don't know you, but when I see loud in the scriptures, it means loud. It means we sing. I interpret this literally. Like we are singing. There's no mic, right? There's no guitar. It's just let's sing with tambourines and, and, and cymbals, but let's sing. Sing loud. Verse 6, sing praise to God. Sing praises. Local church, here, isn't that beautiful? That God is displaying His grace in all of you. And when I, think, when I just look at this congregation from this perspective, and I see the, the diversity of this church, which is the pillar and the foundation of truth. Friends, if this does not captivate your heart, I don't know what will. How God brings all of these people together from different backgrounds to worship Him, to sing, to listen to His Word. In conclusion, the Bible, just to emphasize, the Bible recognizes only two offices in the church, elders and deacons. The elders are to be blameless and have a good reputation before the unbelieving community. Likewise, deacons must be dignified, worthy of respect, people of integrity and character, trustworthy in all things. Now, let me speak to you, fellow deacons, just a word of encouragement for you in your service to this local congregation. You have been called by Jesus and elect by this church to meet tangible needs in this congregation. In serving this church, you help to promote unity, enhance the elders' ministry, and accelerate the church's mission. Your service is much needed in this congregation. And I believe this congregation have qualified servants to fill this office, and I'm glad to be able to labor alongside all of you. Brothers and sisters, collectively, this local congregation is a pillar of truth in North Arlington, in this community. And as individuals, we are ambassadors of Christ, ambassadors of truth and love. Therefore, it is crucial that we as leaders and all of you members must live according to our profession of faith, our conduct in and outside of the church strengthens or weakens the congregation's ministry in this community. Let's bow our heads and pray.